Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If Jesus rose from the dead, then that's part of the most important speech in history. If he didn't, then that's a really challenging, probably absurd, potentially insane thing for someone to say. Starting a new series on the book of Matthew, what I like to do is give us a robust picture of Jesus as he's presented in the scriptures leading up to the time of Easter. For those of us that are following him, it's encouraging to get to know him better. For those of us that are considering following him, we want to know who he is. We want that consideration to be sincere and as robust as we can make it. If you're not a follower of Christ, and I, I like to do this for a lot of reasons, I like to point out good reasons to not be a Christian, because there are a lot of bad reasons. Such as, well, I just hadn't thought about it. But a good reason is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. If you think Jesus is a man who did not rise from the dead, those are good verses to point out, well, I just don't think that's true. Because I think he was a regular guy, and so I'm not following him. He did seem nice but a little bit crazy. And the way that we're going to explore the person of Christ this season is to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Which I'm saying because Jesus rose from the dead and there were witnesses to that, both eyewitnesses and secondhand witnesses, it makes it the most important speech in human history. Even more important than Henry V's speech at Crispin's Day. What Jesus does is he describes the kingdom. He describes what it looks like for followers of him to be out in the world. It begins with this section that I, I don't love the phrasing of, though it's a, a pleasant sounding word. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And the reason I don't love it, even though I kind of like the way the word sounds, is how, have you ever decided to be a different attitude? I haven't. Successfully. Every day I try and am unsuccessful at it. The other reason is because the Greek is uh, blessed are. And it's a, it's a passive description of the followers of Jesus. Then there's a section that I think is probably familiar to many of you where Jesus says, you are the salt and light. You're the light of the world. You're the salt. Salt was incredibly important in the first century. It was a fertilizer and a preservative and a flavoring of food. I think most of I hope most of us like salt because it's a delight. But... It was even more important back then. But again, it's just a description. Wow, I didn't even hear my sermon last week. <laughs> I'm not using the word just. I know, I know. At least I caught it. Don't have to get your email later. So the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. And the second thing is a description. And what I believe is most important for us to notice first about the Sermon on the Mount is this statement from, G, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, if you have your device or Bible. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is a gentle way other writers in Scripture use to tell us that we're going to naturally think that way. Or we are already naturally thinking that way. That there's a Savior and it means that we don't need the law or the prophets anymore. This is where I take a breath and remember I can't do that with every clause or I won't actually get to the sermon. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Kind of hoping to see a stool. Here's one. So this is amazing. Sorry, sound people, if you had to watch out for feedback there. Because Jesus left the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan and he sat down on a mountain and he began both acting like Moses and God from the Exodus and teaching about himself and the law. And I'm not going to teach the whole time sitting here because, well, I don't want to and I don't want to hear about it later. But I want to point out that Jesus sat down with a posture, literally, of humility. And then said, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, the Torah, and the testimony of Amos and Elijah and Elisha and Zechariah and Malachi, but to fulfill them. What a collision of deity and humanity. That's what's happening at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that when I say your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you're like, is is there football on today? Because we're removed from this section of Scripture and we don't grasp the incredible profoundness of what Jesus is implying and stating at the same time. Dan, I'll put this back for you so you don't have to move Matthew's chapter 1 and 2 the stories we know is the, of the incarnation the story of the miraculous birth of Jesus those are not so subtle when Jesus spoke about it he's being subtle he's being invitational to Jewish followers of God and Matthew in writing it this way is being gentle and subtle a Jewish follower though would understand that a young man knew that he was called to rescue people He went to the wilderness and then he went to a mountain and they would remember the story of the Exodus. Jesus is embodying all sides of that at the same time and telling us that he fulfills those things, not abolishes them. Jesus sits down to talk about himself and about the law. You remember the story of the Exodus where the nation of Israel was in slavery to the nation of Egypt. God brought them out of slavery. Very interesting part of scripture. And then after going out, Moses goes up onto a mountain and there are all these storms and he comes back down with two pieces of stone that scripture says God wrote with his finger. He only did this once. Technically twice, but only wrote with his finger once for the law. The Ten Commandments. 
Jesus is both the giver of the commandments and the one helping the people to understand them. So Matthew chapter 1 and 2 are a little more explicit in the collision of deity and humanity in Jesus' statement that he embodies and is going to teach the things of God to men and women and that he is going to be a man or he is a man at this point. Now, if you know anything about the law in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, especially the Torah, there are well over 600 laws and many of them are about how to have a church state nexus. Well, that part is the part that's fulfilled. Much of it is ceremonial, such as how to wash and how to maintain a clean community. According to the book of Hebrews, that is fulfilled in Christ. But then the other laws, the moral laws, are still here. And that's what Jesus is talking about, that not an iota of them will go away. Jesus didn't just teach about himself and the law, and especially fulfilling the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 17 this wild story happens. And I just think it's amazing how the story goes. Have you heard of the transfiguration? You know what I'm talking about? So the disciples are watching Jesus and Peter, James, and John get to go. So Matthew must have learned about this from, from them. They go up on a mountain. Jesus begins to shine very brightly. And who shows up? Moses and Elijah. And this is what I love about the story. Peter gets all nervous. And he's like, I should build some tents for everybody, right? How human, guy. What would you do? First of all, you get to be best friends with Jesus. That's pretty cool. Although Peter's still learning who Jesus is at that time. But then Elijah, so your, your dead heroes of the faith, appear and begin speaking with Jesus. And the Bible, one of my very favorite things about it is, writes... Directly, these collisions of the transcendent and spiritual and religious all at the same time. So Jesus not only taught that he's fulfilling the law and the prophets, he displayed it to the disciples. And after that, it was easier for them to understand that he was the Christ, the Savior of sinners. Jesus is sitting with a posture of humility and also embodying these three offices. Perhaps you've heard of this. Jesus is both the prophet of the new Israel, which is faith in him, according to John 15. Prophet is a truth speaker. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to speak real directly to us. What he says about anger, word for word, just still works today and convicts us. What he says about lust, just still works today and convicts us. He's going to be a truth speaker. He's also the priest. He mediates between God and us. Now, that is a finished mediation, but he's also a king. He is going to teach us how to flourish as a human being now and eternally. Jesus sits down to talk about himself and the law, and here's the reason that this is interesting not just because he rose from the dead and therefore it's the most important speech ever given. It's also interesting because it explains something about you and about me today. These two tendencies that are probably constantly going on in all of our hearts and minds every day. And it's internal for the most part, 
though people can see the effects of it. Here are the two tendencies. One is, I'm going to follow all the rules. I'm going to be that person. I'm going to follow all the rules. And I'm going to judge the person that doesn't follow the rules. And I'm going to feel pretty comfortable judging them because I follow all the rules. And then I'm going to live in fear because I don't actually follow all of the rules. And I'm kind of afraid that someone's going to find me out because there's some amount of hypocrisy in my being. That's one tendency. To believe that following the rules can save us. And by the rules, I'm mostly meaning the Ten Commandments, but I'm using the word rules to point out the humanity that Jesus is helping us understand. Is that you? You're pretty comfortable with authority and follow all the rules? And then wake up in the middle of the night and realize you're not following them nearly as well as you wish that you were, though you long to because you long to love well. There's another tendency. Perhaps this you'll relate to this a little more. Well, I can't keep them anyway, which is fine. I don't like authority, so whatever. I'm just not going to pay attention to the rules. I'm going to make up the rules as I go along. These are our two tendencies as humans. To run away from God by keeping all the commandments and rules. Or to run away from God by being like, I'm just going to make up my own rules. With that as a heading, we go back to Matthew 5:17 through 20 and listen to the gentle, clear words of Jesus. Do not think, because we do, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. By the way, Jesus is not explaining to us how the world as we know it will change. He does that much more extensively later in Matthew. He's pressing a point about the law. This is not about the end times. I know that because Jesus talks about the end times later in Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is famous for its exaggeration to get our attention. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, take it out. You know what? The reason that we know that teaching is it's so compelling. It still kind of works. It's like, whoa, really? And we know it's an exaggeration because though our depth perception would be thrown off, we could probably still sin with just the one eye. Right? Same thing here. He's pressing the point that while the earth is like this, the law is still there. Why? For our flourishing, but it can't save us. Following it or rejecting it can't save us because both of those tendencies in humans, theologically we would call it antinomian, so there's no law, or legalism. Both of those are ways from running from God and both of them, even worse, are ways of trying to save ourselves. The alternative is to follow in grateful response to what he's done. To understand that the commandments, the words of the Lord are given to us for our flourishing. Because we are already saved by calling him Lord. But our tendency is to run in opposite directions. There's a story about this. We erroneously call it the parable of the prodigal son. That's not what it's about. You know there are more verses about the older son than the younger son. It's in Luke 15. You know why? Because I think it's a worse disease to think that we can follow God by keeping all of his commandments. We can't. They're given to us for our flourishing, but that flourishing begins with acknowledging that we can't keep them all. 
We trust him and then we keep them as a grateful response for our flourishing. One of the things that might disrupt you if you read the book of Matthew is chapter 23. He speaks to a number of teachers that were both trying to save themselves through rule keeping and teaching others to do the same. And he calls them fools. And then he calls them blind fools. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. Because he was love incarnate. And he saved his harshest language for those that believed they could save themselves by being good. You and I know, I think, that there is no joy in that. Jesus sits down to talk about himself and the law, which reveals our tendencies, which is to run from him in opposite directions, both of which are actually ways of trying to save ourselves. And there's another thing going on here that he is going to continue to press and is taught throughout the scriptures and it creates a tension for us, especially those of us that are a little more... We have sonar in here? This is amazing. So oftentimes on a Sunday I'll wake up and I'll think my sermon's not funny enough. And there are not very many jokes in here. And this is, this, is full, this is pulling it off, I feel like. Somebody later tell me what that was. That was fantastic. We can only do that once or twice a year, too. Whoever did that. We can only do that once or twice a year. So there's a tension presented to us right here by Jesus and through the rest of Scripture, which is that we are to be perfect. The requirement of God, and I think the requirement of ourselves, is actually perfection. One of the reasons that you beat yourself up is because you're made in the image of God and you long to love well. Not in every moment, because we get tired and people hurt us. We long for our work to be honoring to God and man. And it's not. It's cursed, right? It is, but imperfectly so. Sometimes we do love well, but mostly that's pretty limited. There is an expectation that we're perfect because we're made in the image of God, and yet we can't have perfection. So what we do is trust Christ with and in our need. And I'm presenting that to you, and if you're a a, a binary kind of thinker, zero and one, it means you're very successful in the parts of academia that I am not and was not. It's also challenging and, and, but presented to us in Scripture that we be perfect. John writes it. Paul writes it. The expectation of God is that we live a holy life and yet we can't so we're pressed to live in the tension of that. In verses 19 and 20, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The expectation of the kingdom is that we are constantly being grown throughout this life into better lovers of God and neighbor. And it will not be fully accomplished, and it is ever being accomplished. That is the tension that Scripture asks us to live in until Jesus returns. 
One of my favorite authors calls it the utter relief of holiness. And to those of us that understand this about Scripture, perhaps you receive it the way I do, with a joyful sigh. (sighs) I am expected to be perfect. Good, because I want to be on some of my days. God expects me to be, and yet I won't be. And so we trust Him, not only salvifically forever to save us, but daily to grow us up into better lovers of Him and neighbor. This is the general version of the teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We will learn much more specifically where we need to be grown up by the Holy Spirit. And the reason that we can receive this with a joyful sigh is that the beginning of the human understanding of faith, God's pursuit started way before we were aware of it, but the beginning of the human understanding of faith is need. Do you know that you need Jesus? If you do, I'm so glad. Be encouraged. As you take the sacrament, just remember that you need Him and that you have Him. If you're considering faith in Jesus, the consideration is, do I know that I need Him, that I cannot be good enough, and that I certainly cannot receive joy through rejecting? I can't follow all the rules and receive joy. I can't reject all the rules and be joyful. I need Him, not only to save me eternally, but to provide me with space for my flourishing as a human being. That's Him as a king. If you know your need, that's not just the beginning of your faith, that's the middle. That's how we're growing up, is remembering our need and learning to worship and to love. That's the end of our faith too, remembering our need and being drawn increasingly into prayer and humility. And it gives life in our mind to what's actually happening here spiritually with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We receive the bread and the unfermented wine, remembering that we need the body and the blood of Christ, and we have it. We're freed into eternal security and joy today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, You have purchased joy for us through the work of your Son. You have left us the Holy Spirit. Fill us now with the Spirit. Give us a sense of the joy and the peace that you have purchased for us as we receive the sacrament. Amen.